Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear editor-at-large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Raihan Salam, the president of the Manhattan Institute, a public policy think tank based in New York City, and a regular commentator on Anglo-American culture and politics in The Atlantic, Foreign Policy, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and National Review, where he served for several years as a senior editor. Let me just say that Raihan is one of the most consistently interesting and insightful people that I've ever met. His thinking on the intersection between immigration, culture and economics in particular, including his 2018 book, Melting Pot or Civil War, A Son of Immigrants Makes the Case Against Open Borders, has had a profound effect on me. He's recently published a new essay in foreign policy entitled, Why Skills-Based Immigration is the Best Option for America. I'm grateful to speak with him about the essay, as well as various other topics, including his extraordinarily well-informed views on Canadian policy and politics. Raihan, thanks for joining me at Hub Dialogues. Sean, it is an honor and a delight to be here. I am an avid listener to the Hub Dialogues podcast. I'm a huge, huge fan, and I really believe that the Hub is a breath of fresh air in North American media writ large. I know that Sean does not like this kind of aggressive flattery, but (laughs) I really am a huge, huge fan, and really, this is uh, such a pleasure. If we can start by way of background, you were, as I mentioned in my introduction, a leading thinker and writer at National Review, which is one of the most important institutions in the world of American conservatism. You were someone who had earned an audience with the broader policy and political establishment because of the rigor and analytical nature of your commentary. A few years ago, though, you made an interesting career choice. You decided to become the president of the Manhattan Institute, and in so doing, went from the world of individual commentary to institutional policy, research, analysis, and dissemination. What caused you to make that jump? And what's your experience been like so far? The truth is that though I certainly did devote a lot of my early career to writing and thinking in public, what I've always really loved doing is identifying talented people and really help them develop their careers, help them get their voice out in the world. I've always been very interested in being part of a larger movement, part of a larger coalition, part of a you know larger effort to change public policy for the better. And that was really always a consistent theme, though it wasn't always reflected in my job title, let's say. It's just something that I always really enjoyed and prized. And I also found as I got older that, you know, though, you know, again, I was quite happy to write. I still am happy to write when I can. It really is more that idea of assembling a really talented, thoughtful, creative group of people together 
and seeing what are the ways that I can complement their efforts? What are the ways that I can support them? What are the ways that I can you know, find people with complementary skills and make them a more effective team? That's the stuff that I've always really loved and appreciated. And so the Manhattan Institute is an organization that I've long admired. It is an organization that had a pretty central role in my own political formation. Um, it, um, as you know, your listeners ought to know, played a really vital role in um, the urban renaissance in America's cities in the 1990s and 2000s by advancing a bunch of common sense reforms to policing and public safety, public finance, just a number of other domains. And so, you know, I really felt like this was an opportunity for me to see, you know, can I take this organization that did so much for me and did so much to enrich American public life? Can I continue that tradition? And can I also just take the fact that, you know, the, the things that I've always really loved are, are this kind of institution building, community building kind of work and, and make it my full-time job. So, you know, I was just immensely grateful to have that opportunity and um, really grateful to work with people who are exceptionally bright, exceptionally capable, and who are kind of better at the things that I was doing than, than I ever was, you know, just at that work of writing, reporting, analysis. And, you know, I, I get to be among people that I, I, I just have always admired. Uh, as you mentioned, the Manhattan Institute has earned its reputation over the years for having a direct and positive influence over urban policy. Uh, I think, for instance, of the broken window theory, which was conceived and, and popularized by James Q. Wilson in his work associated with the Institute and has since produced positive results in reducing crime in, in New York City and other major cities. The Institute has been a, a leader on a whole host of issues, including housing, transit, etc., it's fair to say, though, Rehan, that at least in, in most major cities, a progressive policy orthodoxy has taken shape. Why don't you talk a bit about the current municipal policy landscape? And are there any reasons to feel optimistic that the Manhattan Institute's perspective and ideas might find a renewed audience amongst policymakers and the general public? This is a very big, persistent challenge not just in the United States, but in virtually all market democracies. But let's limit ourselves to the English-speaking market democracies. Are basically, there's this very tight association between density and support for the political left. Jonathan Rodden, a political scientist at Stanford, has done some really fascinating work on this question. You know, when you're looking at uh, Britain, for example, you really see these very striking relationships between areas where, for example, there was a coal mine, you know, uh, 100 plus years ago, and still that area votes in a very distinctive way. And also this pattern is fractal because, for example, if you look even at a rural county, if you look at the way the county seat votes versus the outlying corners of the county that are much lower in population density, you will see a political gradient as well uh, in terms of support for the political left. So this is a really striking and persistent pattern. Now, it also maps onto some developments that I won't say are unique to the United States, but particularly pronounced in the United States, namely that what we've seen in the U.S., is a very intense nationalization of our political discourse. This follows a number of different you know, other developments, one of which is the nationalization of our media landscape, also some of the particular structural properties of our political system. But the upshot of it is that if you are an ambitious politician, you will oftentimes look to what are these nationalized political controversies. Oftentimes they're cultural in character. Oftentimes they rest on what you might call identity cleavages within the wider population. And you vote on those issues, and you're not necessarily voting on the issues that are most salient 
at the state or local level, or that are, you know, you'd think would be most salient at the state or local level, you know, as in Canada, as in many other market democracies, you know, different levels of government have different responsibilities. But of course, those have been blurred. You had a recent Hub Dialogue episode talking about this concept of watertight federalism. And needless to say, in the United States, we do not have watertight federalism. We have a system of cooperative federalism in which federal officials more and more try to play in what were traditionally state and local domains. So there's a real blurring of these lines of authority. And so oftentimes, you know, what you'll see in the US is, you know, when you have partisan elections at the municipal level, which is not uncommon, people will vote exactly the same way in local elections as they do in federal elections, partly because they don't necessarily know exactly what's going on. And, and by the way, that's no crime. They don't have a reliable heuristic tied to local issues specifically. So you will have voters who are cross-pressured, who might be Democratic voters at the federal level, who might actually have what you might call small c conservative instincts, you know, fiscally conservative instincts, you know, pro-growth instincts, you know, call it what you will, on issues of local importance. But that's overridden by the fact that it's the nationalized party label that matters most. Now, if you look to Canada, it is an interesting case because you do have different parties at the provincial level, partly you know, through happenstance, through tradition. At the local level, it's not uncommon to have local political parties. And I think that in theory, that would give you a little bit of purchase, a little bit of wiggle room. It's not obvious to me that that always plays out you know, in terms of political outcomes. But I will say that given the low salience of these issues, sometimes that means that you can have a mayor, let's say, of a, you know, whether they have a, a D next to their name or an R next to their name, you know, they can pursue policies that have a different ideological orientation than you'd expect from their national party label. And that creates some opportunities. So, you know, I know there's a lot there, but I think that that is a big, big dilemma for those who want, um, call it conservative reform at the local level. And then of course, there's the role of um, unionized public sector employees and that stuff varies from place to place, but there are many other factors that really contribute to that, call it progressive hegemony in urban America, certainly. In a really thoughtful interview that you did with the New York Times columnist Ezra Klein in the spring, you, you talked about what you called a quote, quality of life conservatism. At the foundation of such an agenda, you didn't put education or housing or healthcare, you placed public safety. That message certainly resonates with me. Uh, New York City, where we both reside, has, according to virtually any metric, become less safe in, re in recent years. And I ask you just to reflect on the importance of public safety, including to the extent to which it, it, we seem to have forgotten the hard-earned lessons of previous decades. This is a very fraught issue, particularly among educated professionals, educated policy professionals, there has been a real normative shift in how people think about these issues from, call it the 1990s. You know, but even if you look over a, a larger sweep of American history, you know, in the United States, as you'll know, Sean, not unique to the United States, but was particularly pronounced in the US, you saw a really sharp increase in violent crime in the 1960s that persisted through the 70s and 80s. And in the 80s, it, it kind of entered a new phase. And I'm generalizing here, but um, it entered a new phase with the crack epidemic. Basically, there was such a dramatic surge in violent crime you know, over this long period 
that it had many, many consequences, both for the economic and social geography of the country. You know, for example, there's a lot of talk and and kind of you know modern U.S. history about the phenomenon of white flight or middle class flight. And there's a lot of interesting work to suggest that you know was there some degree of racial prejudice involved in people moving from urban cores that were being transformed by the black migration from the deep south to cities in the north and west? Yes, but actually th there's a lot of work to suggest that a big driver of this was you know what the economist Leo Bustan calls the fiscal demographic channel. That is, even people living in neighborhoods that were not going through an ethnic transition because of basically this changing balance in the tax base in service provision, including, of course, policing, it just basically became kind of a bad deal for a lot of people to live in these urban cores that were experiencing this kind of rapid change in their fiscal demographic balance. And again, a lot of that's driven by crime. So many of the things that I personally lament, and here I'm speaking in a personal rather than institutional capacity, I'm a big believer in dense, walkable cities. I believe that there's you know, a lot to be said for traditional neighborhood design, the, the vitality that flows from mixed use communities. You know, uh, and so, I, you know, again, I have a lot of personal preferences about this, but there's a way in which, yes, there are people who want more land. There are people who really embrace the kind of suburban or exurban lifestyle, but there's a real way in which that sharp increase in violent crime greatly contributed to those outflows. And I think really diminished the quality of life for a lot of people it also, I think, in some ways diminished our productive potential. It diminished the possibility for, you know, call the more integrated social networks in which people from different groups could rub shoulders and form deep and meaningful relationships. My view is that violent crime actually engenders this deep suspicion of your neighbors, of people who belong to different groups. You start to think in terms of group categories and group averages in a way that can be very corrosive you know, of the idea of building a successful, vibrant, you know, multi-ethnic society. And so that's one reason why I'm so zealous about public safety and, and what violent crime does. And in fact, there's so much evidence that actually it would really be pretty darn cost-effective to spend a lot more on public safety. Now, what exactly that means is contested politically. Someone like me, you know, might place more of an emphasis on, you know, literally investing more in proactive policing and in incarceration. You know, again, these are things that are very contentious. Others might say, hey, let's spend more on summer youth employment programs. Let's spend more on literally the design of our streets, our lighting and what have you. I'm, by the way, I'm actually quite friendly to some of those ideas too. I'm more of a both and person when it comes to fighting violent crime, but I really believe that we neglect this at our peril. And I would argue that one issue that I have with some folks, I won't say it's just on the left, it's also some on, on the libertarian right, but who say, let's move away from a punitive approach, let's disinvest in proactive policing, et cetera. What I fear is that you've seen a kind of progressive star of the beast in which you are actually draining some of these crucial institutions that are that endeavor to provide public safety of resources. And then one of the knock-on consequences of that is that they are less effective. You have longer backlogs. They're less responsive. In some cases, when you're talking about incarceration, conditions can be worse, indeed less humane, because you're not actually investing in them properly. And so you know, I would believe that you know, this is an area where I'm a big government conservative. I'm big government when it comes to making sure that we keep our streets safe, making sure that we're investing in a system that is responsive, effective, humane, fair, 
transparent, that cares about recidivism, but really that is saying that we do not want egregious, grave inequalities in how physically safe you are just based on the neighborhood you live in. When you think about it in those terms, it really is kind of a scandal. And if you want to talk about racial equity, interethnic equity and justice, just to me, the fact that there are some people who are just way more likely to be victimized, to me, is a moral scandal and something that merits much more attention, focus, seriousness. I, I want to shift the subject now to immigration policy. As I mentioned, this is a subject for which I've, I've benefited immensely from your thinking and writing including your very well-regarded 2018 book, Melting Pot or Civil War. At the risk of oversimplifying its complexity, how would you describe the book's main thesis or idea? The main idea is that when we think about immigrants, we should not think of them just as individuals. We should not just think of them as workers. We should not just think of them as you know, people who might be dangerous or bad or causing all sorts of problems, nor should we just think of them as saints, people who, by virtue of the fact that they're seeking opportunity, they're seeking refuge. We want to think about this issue critically and thoughtfully in multi-generational terms. If somehow immigration only involved people who would never form families, you know, for whatever reason, some mysterious reason, the only people we admit are people who've sworn off the idea of ever raising children, ever becoming grandparents. Um, the issue would be drastically different. And you see this reflected in the fact that the immigration discourse in the Gulf Arab states, for example, or in a society like Singapore, where you have very stringent, indeed aggressive regulation of temporary worker status. These are places where you have massive, massive inflows of migrants, where, you know, in the case of Singapore, for example, there will literally be stringent restrictions governing whether or not you can become pregnant. You know, if you're, you're a temporary worker in one of these categories, guess what? You know, you're pregnant, you're out of there. And these are things that will strike your listeners, you know, North American listeners as deeply illiberal, indeed unthinkable. But you know, you could argue that it reflects a clarity of purpose, which is that we see migrant workers as an economic tool in order to enrich our society for the benefit of our citizens. They are not thinking about migration in terms of this is the driver of the future of our society. Future generations will flow from the migrants that we welcome and admit. So in a way, that was really core for me. And when I looked at the immigration debate, when I looked at the way that it played out, when I looked at my frustrations with immigration discourse, both on the left and right, that really was the heart of it. It was the idea that, you know, you either have this sentimentality on the one side that almost tries to suppress any kind of dissenting views or, or any, I don't know, kind of thoughtfulness about, actually, there are real costs here. There are costs here for the migrants themselves. And, and actually, those costs imply that there are obligations on the part of the society. So I kind of think that immigration advocates, for example, you know, will tend to, let's de-emphasize the obligations at the front end. Let's de-emphasize those costs. Let's de-emphasize the idea that this is a serious relationship you're undertaking by welcoming newcomers to your society. They fear the kind of bad old restrictionists, the xenophobes, and they kind of think, well, we don't want to kind of focus on that. But then once you welcome people, once you have 
this newcomer population that faces struggles, faces deficits, faces challenges, then suddenly those same immigration advocates flip to a very different kind of discourse. Then it suddenly becomes, we're not doing enough. This is outrageous. We are a racist society. You have first and second generation people who are far behind, old stock folks, people with deep multi-generational roots. In these ways, they're underrepresented. It's just this crazy whiplash where it's first you say, this is totally costless. How dare you suggest that there's any cost? Then you suddenly say, you must immediately transform your society and you must immediately invest these vast sums of money and emotional and psychic resources in basically accommodating newcomers. And again, you know, I'm not unsympathetic to the, uh, the view that you want to be accommodating, but let's be honest about the fact that this is, a, this is like a marriage. You know, this is not you're swiping left on some dating app. You know what I mean? For you know, you're looking for a good time. You're you're in town. You know, hey, you, you kind of you know want to have dinner with someone new. This is actually a real lasting relationship where, if that person snores, it's going to matter for you, for a lifetime and beyond. I want to pick up on on some of those observations because one of the key insights in the book, Raihan, that has reshaped how I think about these issues is is basically the following. You argue that Canada and the U.S., which are outliers around the world because we grant citizenship based on birth or what's sometimes referred to as birth on soil, we need to think differently about our immigration policies than jurisdictions, as you say, that don't have similar citizenship policy. In effect, what I understand you to be saying is if you have a policy of birth on soil, you can't have an immigration policy that involves little reciprocal or mutual obligation between the nation and those who come here because if they have children, those children become citizens. Once you think about these issues that way, it has pretty major implications. Do you want to elaborate a bit on why birthright citizenship looms so large and how you think about immigration issues? And why do you think others fail to reckon with this fundamental reality? Well, you put it very well, Sean. Just, um, you know, we are really entering into this deep long-term relationship. And, you know, there certainly are people on the restrictionist right in the U.S. who talk about revising birthright citizenship. I've even played with the idea myself as a kind of thought experiment for getting people to think seriously about, you know, what it means to, for example, grant amnesty, what it means to say that we are going to, you know, basically say that, you know, concerns people have about the rule of law are not going to matter in this instance. How do we prevent there being serial amnesties? which are things that I think can also be, um, that can also undermine public trust. So, you know, I, I think that you really, you know, distilled it perfectly. And, you know, I think that is why, well, this is also a subset of a larger issue, which is, I really believe in biting the bullet. One thing that people don't fully appreciate, and of course, this is contested, and you know much more about this than I do, Sean, but Canada is, you know, a market democracy, it's a liberal society, but it really has embraced, and I know that there have been ebbs and flows here, but has really embraced immigration enforcement, has really embraced the notion that if you violate, if you overstay a visa, you know, we are going to take that seriously, and there are very stiff penalties on the books. If you violate, if you violate Canadian immigration law, now I think that in the United States, partly because we have a long border with Mexico, with a middle-income society, and, and a border that is increasingly being a gateway for so-called extracontinental migrants, people from outside the Western Hemisphere who come to South America, move via land. You know, it's a number that is growing quite, quite rapidly. 
you know, we face, I think, a different set of dilemmas, you know, that shapes our thinking in kind of both ways. There's this one view that, you know, essentially our border is exceptionally difficult to control. And therefore, one takeaway from that is we should, you know, more aggressively militarize the border. We should externalize enforcement in various ways. You know, we should kind of pursue that as our strategy. And another view is that, look, we should kind of give up and we should, you know, basically try to regularize and legalize these flows in various ways. And that would be a much more effective tool. Maybe that's a tool that complements enforcement efforts. And I will say I'm not an extremist uh, in either end. I kind of recognize that um, there are subtleties here. But I think that that's something, you know, you could say that Canada benefits from having the Pacific and the Atlantic Oceans. And, you know, you kind of have the Arctic. And then you also have the United States as a kind of buffer as well that allows you to approach this somewhat differently. Now, again, I'm less of a fatalist about the tools that are at our disposal, but there's no question that, you know, it introduces all manner of complexity into a polyethnic, multiracial society. Because basically, there are ways in which immigration discourse intersects with our, as you know, torturous discourse about race, ethnicity, difference, inter-ethnic inequality. And that's something that I also tried to address in the book. I just tried to say, gosh, this also is um, a kind of gating issue. Because if you are Singapore, if you're Qatar, you can say, well, we don't care about inequality per se across these groups because I do not care about the Bangladeshis who are arriving here as temporary workers. Of course, they're poor by the standards of what I would expect for a Qatari citizen. You know, yeah, that's par for the course. They are not part of my society. But if you're a Bangladeshi immigrant to the United States, you know, you are a second generation person. If you're looking at wealth disparities, you know, you're looking at something quite meaningful. Some of the most brilliant immigration advocates, you know, really serious, thoughtful people, they start from a cosmopolitan baseline. And for them, what's relevant is if I'm born in Guyana, I'm a heck of a lot richer if I'm living in the suburbs of Toronto than if I'm remaining in Guyana in a kind of rural place. You know, that makes sense from a purely cosmopolitan perspective. If you're thinking about the guts of a society and how it works, and if you do have a more or less egalitarian sensibility, which by the way, I'm, I wouldn't describe myself as an egalitarian, Sean, but you know, within some bounds, if that's gonna be a kind of background of our politics, if you're gonna have folks in the NDP who are just kind of constantly talking about inter-ethnic inequality, well then guess what? You gotta think about that at the front end too as something that's going to inform your thinking, that process of selection is going to have deep implications for the inequalities that will get reproduced in your society over time. Consistent with the book's thinking, your your recent foreign policy essay that I mentioned makes the case for a U.S. immigration policy that resembles something like Canada's point system. As you write, quote, Virtually all of the world's market democracies have moved towards points-based systems that select migrants on the basis of language proficiency, educational credentials, employment offers, and other characteristics that predict labor market success and rapid integration. Why not the United States? What's the political economy obstacle here? This is such a thorny set of issues. So first, I will say for your Canadian listeners that, you know, I appreciate that there is a lot of complexity to the Canadian system. And that, of course, Canada admits a large number of family class and humanitarian class migrants. And, you know, I would argue that in some ways that we can get into this further, if you'd like, Sean, that under the Trudeau government, there have been moves that I think have not been entirely beneficial 
And, and I think in some ways, the Canadian system has moved in a direction that is less salutary in terms of its long-term consequences, potentially, vis-a-vis -vis the United States. You know, one big difference is simply because we are not a Westminster parliamentary democracy, the question of executive authority, you know, basically the speed and nimbleness with which we can restructure the system from the ground up, you know, those are things that can be somewhat inhibiting. Now, I'm a great believer in our system. I'm a great believer in the idea that the, the kind of idiosyncrasies of our Congress, the limitations placed on our executive branch, you know, to my mind, they reflect this belief that you want broad, overlapping majorities that are durable over time to affect big, dramatic policy change. Now, I can imagine a world in which the U.S. embraced an immigration system somewhat closer to what you've seen emerge in Canada and Australia over the past several decades that would give some discretion to the executive within clear guidelines provided by congressional legislation. You know, again, that can go better or worse depending on the circumstances. But I think that, you know, I would love to see congressional legislation that does provide some broad contours, you know, for what a point system might look like that could then be adjusted, you know, but there would be some kind of discretion set, you know, discretion within limits. Um, I think that that would be really, really beneficial. But I think the big, big obstacle is that you need a broad, durable, overlapping majority. And also one particular of our politics is that because immigration is such a contentious issue, very hard to see it happening on a um, you know through a single party. The filibuster in the Senate ha has made it exceedingly difficult uh, because you know you effectively need at least sixty plus votes in the Senate. Then uh, you also you know have to have you know the fact that the two houses aren't identical. Republicans in the House are oftentimes different from Republicans in the Senate. You've had a number of big, ambitious, comprehensive immigration reform proposals that almost crossed the finish line because they had broad support in the Senate, but there was resistance in the House for very good reason, you know, I would argue uh, in some places, you know, because basically our immigration reform efforts have kind of been no trade-offs efforts. Let's make everybody in the immigration expansion coalition happy. Let's not say, well, we're going to pare back family stream somewhat to increase economic stream. Nope. We're just going to increase it across the board. And then, you know, public opinion on immigration is a little bit tricky to read because, you know, you could say, should you increase the numbers? Should you decrease the numbers? You know, you'll get one answer. But if you say, do you want to decrease family? Do you want to decrease economic? Do you want to decrease humanitarian? You'll get different answers. Do people have a clear sense of how the numbers have changed over time, for example? You know, so I think that, you know, that's not always a reliable guide. But I think that the broad fact is that you don't have a large number of people who want big increases. And so the kind of reform proposals that we saw during the Obama administration, for example, during the George W. Bush administration, typically entailed quite significant increases in legal inflows. Now, what you'll hear from partisans of those proposals is that, well, actually, overall, considering that unauthorized inflows were quite big, you're not actually seeing a big delta there. You know, and again, so we can debate that. But I think the big picture is that we need a new settlement. We need a new bipartisan approach that does not discount the fact that you know the the broad public, mass public opinion, does not really favor drastic increases in inflows. Now, I will also say that my thinking is softened on some of these issues, partly because of some of the challenges we've seen emerge throughout the COVID experience, and also 
you know, just some of my conflicted feelings about the implications of demographic change for migration. But, you know, that's a whole separate issue. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Go to our website, www.thehub.ca, and sign up for our daily email newsletter, Per Diem. Each morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, in your inbox, you'll receive the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors, all curated for you based on the issues and ideas that are moving the public conversation. Sign up now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Raihan, you're a keen observer of Canadian immigration policy. What's your sense of current policy trends, particularly the increase in the annual intake that we've seen under the Trudeau government? Is there a risk of too much of a good thing? In, in other words, just because immigration is good for the country and is presently properly supported by and large, do you think the government's ambitions risk harming the country's unique political economy equilibrium? Sean, this is an issue that I'm obsessively interested in and I will just begin by saying that Canada is um, a decentralized federal state. And though the federal government weighs heavily um, through its transfers to provincial and local governments, really, you know, it is a patchwork to some degree. And so when we're looking at, for example, something like local land use regulation, that is not something that is dictated by Ottawa, right? But it happens that local land use regulation in call it the three or four biggest, most populous metropolitan areas, the interaction between that local land use regulation and immigrant inflows is actually humongously profound for economic outcomes, for patterns of domestic migration, and also for what you might call the emergence of, of new solitudes. So, you know, there's this uh, discourse of the two solitudes. Um, in Canadian history. But, you know, what does it mean when you have these lines of fracture between urban Canada and rural Canada? What does it mean when you have groups, first and second generation groups, that are quite large, quite robust, that have a diaspora sensibility, and where, you know, these are, you know, people who are Canadian, they deserve to be treated as Canadian, they deserve to be respected, they deserve to have voice. But also, um, you know, when you're thinking about backlashes against migration in different societies, my suspicion is that they sometimes stem, it's not so much from the size uh, of the inflow, but as the size of the inflow and perceived cultural distance, and also the relationship between the size of the inflow and native birth rates, native fertility. Why is that? Well, one way to think about, you know, how a Canadian, call it an old stock Canadian person who's 60 plus, so, you know, could have another good 20 years of voting and participating in civic and public life. How does that person think about public investment in education, in infrastructure? How does that person think about the future of the country? How does that person think about the burdens that might be placed on her or on him when it comes to, you know, local schools and you name it, just, you know, spending money on a local park? If you think about it in terms of your children and grandchildren, you might think about it one way. You might think about your, you know, having an investment in the future. If you think about these rising generations as being foreign, not especially connected to you, there being some cleavage there, 
you might think about it differently. And, and one thing I would say is that when you're looking at earlier eras of immigrant inflows uh, in the United States, for example, what you will see is that our immigrant inflows today are not unusually high, certainly not by the standards of the late 19th century, early 1900s. They are awfully high in the broader sweep of American history relative to native fertility, you know, the family size of multi-generational Americans. And of course, you know, when you're looking at newcomers too, they're actually oftentimes having pretty small family size too. This is true on both sides of the border um, across North America. So that also addresses how you think about immigration as a kind of demographic boon, as a kind of get out of jail free card when you're thinking about old age entitlements, et cetera. But I mean, to me, that's the, the big thing. And again, that's not me saying, therefore, let's shut it down. Because I will also say that demographic stagnation and zero population growth, negative population growth can be incredibly painful economically and otherwise, can be a real drag, not just on growth in gross terms, but even on per capita growth. You know, you know, you kind of have less vitality, and I think that it may well have an effect on your capacity for innovation and much else. But yeah, I mean, I think that that's the kind of big picture. You know, I think that when you're looking at overall immigration numbers, it sounds silly, but think about rents in Toronto and Vancouver and Montreal and Calgary. You know, you want to think about that. You know, we are not talking about authoritarian central planning societies where you're going to kind of fiddle with all of these levers all at once. Because already, you know, kind of Canadian migration, I believe it's something like close to 3x what is coming into the United States. I would say we probably ought to be a little bit higher. And, and maybe you guys ought to think about pumping the brakes just a little bit because there are knock-on consequences that have a real effect on upward mobility in terms of accessing the housing market and, and, and other things too. It's not just about wages. It's also about these other things that can affect real incomes. And I think that that's something that people discount. You look at a lot of sophisticated economic analysis saying, hey, you know, business models adapt. The impact on wages can be muted, particularly over the longer term. I buy that. But again, there are other channels through which migration can affect the quality of life in ways that could yield problematic policy and cultural responses. There's just a ton of insight there, uh, Raihan. Just in parentheses, you know, one of the issues that Howard Anglin, a regular hub contributor and former chief of staff to the federal immigration minister, has raised in the past is the disconnect between the federal government setting annual intake targets without properly consulting provincial and local governments to ensure, as you say, that there's alignment with um, sub-jurisdictional policies with respect to housing or transit or schooling or whatever. It's like the federal government gets to make this big announcement with a, a, with a big sticker number and then leaves it to sub-national jurisdictions to figure out how to implement it. And, and so I think there's a, a, a lot of insight there about the need for a kind of bottom-up process of setting immigration targets as opposed to a top-down one. So I'm conflicted about this, Sean, because I will say that, you know, I think Howard's point is well taken, but my nightmare would be nimbyism at the local level then gets entrenched in immigration policy too. And I thought, I suppose another line of argument could be that, hey, look, central planning is not going to work. You know, what we're demonstrating is that you know, Ontario needs to be much more aggressive about building more homes. I think that's something that has been a big theme at the hub. You know, I know that the Spoke brothers are very excited about this. I know you are too, Sean. And I know that Pierre Poiliev cares very deeply about this issue too. So I think that that's fair. I think that's fair and true that you need that local land use deregulation. But, you know, I also think 
it's interesting. Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, she came into office partly saying, as someone who is a very progressive person, someone who really embraces the idea of a multi-ethnic New Zealand, but saying, hey, we're going to have to reduce inward migration because of the housing crisis that we're in. So, you know, I guess my preference would be I really do want to see Canada's cities, Canada's municipalities embrace housing growth. But we also, yeah, need to be mindful also about social services, because one thing that you've seen, of course, is humanitarian immigration increasing markedly. Or when you talk about family migration, can we structure things in a way where we really emphasize family responsibility? If you're sponsoring a family migrant, well, gosh, you know, you really need to take that seriously. One thing that I love about the Canadian system is the fact that, you know, the U.S., U.S. citizens can sponsor their parents for permanent visas without limit. You know, it is it is not a category that's subject to quotas. In Canada, you are entitled, as I understand it, to renewable visas, provided you are going to be on the hook for long-term care. I mean, that's incredibly important, right? Because, you know, you're just saying that, you know, of course we want more grandparents, you know, in the country. We want to keep families together. We believe in that. But it's up to you. It's your responsibility to do that. And, you know, you can't just say you're going to bring in, you know, your elderly parent, you know, in her 70s, 80s and say that, oh, gosh, you know, we're going to expect the Canadian taxpayer to to foot the bill for this. You know, I think that that strikes me as a very kind of mature, thoughtful, balanced approach to both wanting family reunification, but also saying that, hey, there's a shared responsibility here. It does not all belong to the municipal government, the provincial government, the federal government. It also belongs to the family and the community. And let's find ways that we can basically establish that early on for migrants. I do think my sense is that Canada does a better job for that than the United States. But you know, it's certainly something that I would want us to learn from. On a related question, you've done a lot of thinking about integration, particularly among second generation immigrants. This has become even more important as the immigrant population increases as an overall share. What's your sense of Canada's record in this regard? How ready do you think the country is for a world in which immigrants could exceed half the population within 20 years? Wow, there's so much to say about this. Recently, the Statistics Canada Agency released a fascinating report on what Canada's demographic picture might look like in 2041. And it is just astonishing because you're talking about a Canada in which I believe it's something like, you know, as you were, as you were intimate, as you were suggesting, close to 50% is either first or second generation and 40% plus of the population belongs to so-called racialized minorities. It's funny because I remember I had a debate, I had a bit of a back and forth with some migration scholars in the United States who were arguing that basically reorienting America's public charge rules to basically impose a bit more of a, you know, what what critics would call a wealth test on newcomers to the United States, it would basically lead to more migrants coming from Europe and Canada, which is, say, white um Immigrants are saying, hey, I don't know if you followed what the demographic mix looks like among Canadians under the age of 40, but I don't think it's obvious that these folks would be white. And same from, you know, from Europe. Actually, you know, what you see is a lot of secondary migrants, people who settled first in Sweden and then make their way to Canada or the United States. And, and that's something that, you know, I personally think it would be a good thing to facilitate. But yeah, I mean, these are big, deep questions, and it relates to what we were discussing before vis-a-vis the relationship between native birth rates and immigrant inflows, because a big index of inclusion in a society, full civic participation, beyond civic participation, cultural participation, cultural inclusion is intermarriage. 
And um, you know, what you'll see is that intermarriage patterns really are influenced to no small degree by the relative size of different groups. There's a lot of fascinating literature contrasting the United States and Canada and intermarriage patterns in both countries. One thing that's pretty striking is that you know now the Black Canadian population is growing quite rapidly, but of course it's growing because of newcomers from, for example, East Africa and uh, elsewhere, and the Caribbean, of course, you know that has always been a big source of Black population. In the United States, it's different, but, but the big picture is that Black, non-Black intermarriage in Canada is just way, way higher than in the United States. And part of that is simply because, you know, you could say, oh, it's because, you know, maybe Canada is less racist, you know, maybe, you know, Afro-Caribbean Canadians are doing much better in economic terms. And actually, you know, Canadians of Black origin report a lot of discrimination. You know, there really are a lot of gaps when it comes to incomes, professional status, et cetera. But partly it's just because it's a smaller group in relative size. And so if you're looking for a partner, you know, it's it's heck a lot easier. I mean, that's very simplistic, but that's definitely part of the story. If you look at people of Asian origin on both sides of the border, uh, you know, both sides, you know, high levels of educational attainment. You know, again, there's variation here, but overall, you know, folks are doing pretty well in income terms, wealth terms. But actually, there's way less intermarriage in Canada, Asian white. And there is the United States. And again, partly that's relative group size. Partly it's, you know, the kind of composition of these different groups. So again, that's not the end-all be-all. You know, that doesn't mean, therefore, you know, again, we shut it down or, or we drastically reduce numbers. But it is interesting when you think about a Canada in 2041, where you have entire cities, populations that go back, you know, one or two generations, where there is very little intermarriage with the kind of call it older stock Canadian population, and also where you have that rural urban dimension as well. It's interesting. And I've got to say, there must be a lot of stuff like this going on in Canada right now, and you would know much more about it than me, Sean. But I was thinking, gosh, I really hope the Canadian federal government is really thinking hard about recruiting people into the military, into public safety institutions at the provincial level. I really hope that there are folks in the nonprofit sector in Canada who are trying to get kids, you know, South Asian origin in Brampton and, and get them out to cottage country, you know, just get them. Are there people who kind of are talking about, hey, let's, you know, kind of like we want to have a summer camp program to bring kids, you know, Afro Caribbean origin, East Asian origin. Let's get people to kind of mix and mingle and to really embrace the North. You know what I mean? It's just kind of amazing because you have these, this totally fragmented discourse about, for example, First Nations, you know, indigenous affairs, but then you kind of have these, these kind of dramatic growth, these new populations. And of course, you know, bilingualism, culturalism, you know, you think about in the 2040s, what the heck is that going to look like when you have a huge critical mass of folks who speak Mandarin or Hindi or Punjabi as, you know, kind of big prevalent languages? in a more diaspora-oriented world in which the economic gravitational pull of East Asia will be quite considerable. I suspect that over the next 20 years, India's gravitational pull culturally, economically will increase as well. You know, there is this discourse among some Canadian progressives that Canada's triumph is that it is a post-national society. Needless to say, (laughs) you know, I kind of don't find that to be an especially attractive vision, nor do I believe it's especially realistic. And so if you have a kind of Canadian identity that people are not investing in, people don't believe in, people aren't actually being thoughtful about how do we actually address these new solitudes 
in a kind of thoughtful, systematic way, then I'll tell you, you know, the idea of diaspora politics, uh, of people who are thinking much more of Canada as an arena rather than a state, a country that commands loyalty. And, and I realize that this might sound to some people a little bit conspiratorial or excessively dark or pessimistic, and I don't mean it to. What I mean is that people crave identity, belonging, community, and there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are going to provide that for you. And it could be that actually the government of Guyana or the government of India is going to be doing a much better job of appealing to young Canadians by pulling that tug for them because some Laurentian elites have decided that, well, we're a post-national country and, and that's how we're going to be. And again, I don't think that the modal outcome is necessarily a bad one, but I think that there's a way in which, you know, when I look at kind of central Canadian kind of media, this world, there's, I don't know, people seem so glib. They seem so triumphalist about how much more enlightened we are <laughs> than got a country X or Y that are neighbors to the South, et cetera, that they're not really thinking about, gosh, you know, are we really meeting people where they are? Are we actually this first and second generation population? They are the future. And what does that mean? And how do we incorporate them into the Canadian story in a in a deep way that's not just, oh, official multiculturalism, cool. We'll kind of let them have their festivals and stuff. You know, that's awesome. I'll kind of show up at the, you know, I'll show up at the Gurdwara and uh, you know, it'll be a grand old time. It, it's got to be more than that. Well, Ryan, there's just so much insight there. You've been extraordinarily, extraordinarily generous with your time. I, I just have a couple of final questions, if that's okay. Oh, of course. As you may know, we had Ross Douthat on the podcast recently, and I, I asked him about, about a book that the two of you co-authored in, in 2008, in which you called for a change in Republican Party policy orthodoxy to better reflect the evolution of its voter coalition from college-educated voters to more working-class ones. Obviously, your advice went un mostly unheeded, and the political consequences are still working themselves out. My sense, Rayhan, is that while Ross has remained committed to this shift in conservative orthodoxy, and in fact, in some ways, has gone even further in the age of Trump away from market economics, you haven't. In, in fact, if anything, you've arguably moved back to defending a more conventional approach. Let me ask a two-part question. First, is my interpretation right? And second, is it that you've changed or is it that American conservatives have moved so far beyond the ideas in the Grand New Party that you feel like you need to pull things back a bit? In broad strokes, when we wrote that book, we were reacting to a number of different developments. But you know, part of it was the sense that the real problem with President George W. Bush was that he was not sufficiently austere that he wasn't sufficiently aggressive in rolling back the entitlement state, and that had he done so, the conservative coalition would be in, in much better stead. This thinking contributed to some developments that happened after we published our book, for example, the rise of the Tea Party movement, where there was this notion that the future of the right is in this much more aggressive small government politics. Now, I will say that relative to that view that, um, you know, what we need to do is drastically shrink the size of government relative to where it was in 2006, struck me as a little bit dishonest in this sense. What I think you saw was a kind of posture on the part of many conservative lawmakers, conservative politicians, that they were going to be aggressive government cutters, while not really talking about 
Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security. Some did try to talk about it, but even then there was a kind of illusory politics to it. You know, there was a sense of, well, what happens when the rubber meets the road? Or what will a Republican governor say when you propose this particular plan? So it wound up being awfully symbolic a lot of the time. And so I think to some degree, for me, Grand New Party was a reaction to that. And just think, okay, let's jettison this kind of symbolic small government politics and instead embrace, you know, I think an approach that is consonant with a lot of small government themes. We want economic freedom. We want a decentralized society. We want to um, foster economic opportunity through free enterprise and a kind of free economy writ large. And let's think about the ways in which, you know, we have the safety net. We are going to have the safety net. If you look to every market democracy, this has been a pretty persistent feature of the landscape. How can we make it more conducive to work and wealth building? How can we make it, you know, work in a way that is not strangling private enterprise and initiative, but rather, you know, contributing to it, providing a kind of solid foundation for it? So, you know, to some extent, I would be agnostic, you know, kind of, uh, yes, I mean, I kind of would generally prefer a smaller share of GDP going to public expenditures, but that's not really the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is, are these systems actually working and are they not strangling the things that, you know, we believe are the foundations for America's prosperity and openness? So that to me, was the lodestar. And I think what's happened is that, you know, basically there is a real discrediting of a lot of the kind of movement conservative orthodoxy on political economy, a lot of which, you know, I think the feeling was hadn't really confronted the ways in which global political economy has changed, new emerging challenges. It's not always about top tax rates. It's about many other, you know, kind of challenges we face. And I think a lot of that insight is right. But what you've seen is a lot of people just say, okay, well, we're just going to basically embrace kind of beyond pensant, you know, kind of views about, you know, you know, basically accepting egalitarian premises as though those are the views of kind of lower middle class, middle class, working class voters who kind of make up the the center-right coalition. What I would suggest is that when you're looking at that kind of broad center-right coalition, including, you know, the kind of new elements of it, one big thing you see that is a challenge is that you see more people who come from places that are more economically stagnant. They're not coming from the most kind of dynamic, affluent, productive regions. They're coming from regions where, by the way, they're not especially unequal. In fact, they're oftentimes the least unequal parts of the country but there are places where you haven't seen much growth or demographic vitality. So, you know, my sense is that these are places where actually they trade off some equality for growth. That's what they want. So, you know, again, what does that mean? How is it we create growth? What kind of growth? Of course, we care about income growth. We care about income growth in the bottom half. That stuff's all legitimate. But I just think the policy prescriptions you see just honestly, you know, don't strike me as kind of scratching the right itch. I'll also say when you look at the way that conservative politics have evolved and you think about the real motivating issues for a lot of folks on the broad right, I actually do think they have a lot more to do with identity politics than is commonly acknowledged by some of the people who want a new political economy on the right. So, you know, and this is a big topic, but, you know, I think opposition to racial preferences, opposition to quotas, opposition to a kind of public ideology as expressed in schools and other public institutions that seems to be hostile to the country's historic cultural majority. And I don't mean that in narrowly racial terms. That's one reason why you've seen the emergence of a new kind of multi-ethnic coalition on the right, where you see a lot of folks of Latin American origin, Asian origin, other minority backgrounds, who just kind of feel like, I don't want to be talked to as a member of this or that victim group. I want to be talked to as a citizen. 
and part of a neighborhood or a community that is a real bottom-up community, not a community created by the census or created by someone from a big philanthropic foundation or something like that, or by a big government quota program. So I think that actually those issues are really motivating for people, not tariffs and industrial policy or drastically increasing redistribution. You know, you have something like 2,000 you know, plus domestic social programs in the United States. I really encourage people to think about how are those programs interacting with each other? Do all of them work especially well? Let's maybe rethink, rechannel, consolidate before we talk about, hey, let's create a new one that is going to be drastically different from the other 2,000 that we've already created. Uh, I mean, just the kludginess of it, the kind of layering on, the not thinking critically about the dollars that we're already devoting to these social purposes that oftentimes work across purposes. Now, again, I realize it's not perfect. We're not central planners. You know, policymaking is an accretion of these things over time. I get it. But I would really love a little bit more critical thinking about the programs that already exist and how we might reorient them, how we might rethink them, how we might sunset some of them. Let me close on the state of Canadian conservatism, for which, as I've mentioned a couple of times, you're a very astute follower. Where would you place Pierre Polyev in the context of some of these debates going on within American conservatism? Is he something of a new right economic populist, or does he fit in a more traditional conservative orthodoxy? I'm sorry to say, Sean, that I'm just a really big fan of his in a way that will strike many of your listeners as simplistic. And again, you know, I lead an organization that is a nonpartisan organization. We care about ideas first. We care about good public policy. But, you know, as a foreigner, I guess I can say that I think that Pierre Poiliev strikes me as an exceptionally sophisticated, impressive person. I'm sure he has his flaws, you know, as a communicator, you know, I, I buy that. But I am so deeply impressed by how he has advanced a message of economic freedom that has a kind of moral component to it. You know, as the Wall Street Journal recently pointed out in an editorial on Poiliev's victory, he is someone who is really talking about the desire for economic opportunity, but for the desire on the part of Canadians to be the authors of their own lives. And the sense that in many respects, government at all levels is proving to be an obstacle. I also don't see Poiliev saying, you know, I'm going to phase out our safety net. I'm going to phase out, you know, old age pensions and what have you. I'm going to dissolve, you know, Medicare. You know, I don't see him talking about that. But I, I do hope something that you've also called for. I really hope that he kind of brings that um, sensibility to public services. You know, you know, he talks about defunding the CBC and, you know, what is that exactly does that mean? But when he's talking about public services, I think there's a way to say, how can our public services, how can our safety net help people build wealth over time? How can we build a society? And this is my lodestar in the American context too. I want a society in which there's mass multi-generational affluence. There are big gaps across different groups in our society. I want to close them, not by bringing the top down, but by bringing the bottom up. You know, let's help people. So when I look at things like the TFSA, for example, you know, yeah, it's true. Upper middle class people can save more money in it. But actually, there are a lot of working class people for whom they think of themselves as savers. They think of themselves as people who are building towards something. The Australians would talk about battlers. You know, And what I love about the battlers is that, you know, you could think of it as, oh, just about managing. You can think about it as tragic, but you can also think of it as like people were making their way, building things, trying to accomplish something great. And I think that Poiliev also talks about immigrants in that same way. There are people who are really connected 
to the rural Canadians who are perhaps part of his natural base, but actually they have that same sensibility. He's offering a narrative that allows people like him who have those kind of deeper roots, but people like his wife, you know, her first generation Canadians, they're part of the same story. They're drawing it together. And there's an economic story that's all about that too. And I'd also love to see this celebration of Canadian symbols and making them real for first and second generation people. I think there's so many things that he can do, so many wonderful ways about his freedom rhetoric is not imported libertarian nostrums from overseas. He roots it in the great Canadian political tradition. Freedom is our nationality. It's something that is really neat. And again, we'll see how well it translates. But I think that he's pulling together a lot of these neat themes about Canada's economic future, its ethnic future, in a way that I think would be really powerful and that I would love to see American politicians learn from. I think someone like the governor of Virginia is someone who I think I think actually vibes with a lot of those themes. You know, there, there are some parallels between the two of them. And I would love to see more American politicians embracing the fact that the lower middle class, working class conservatives in the US, they are aspirational people. They want to build wealth for their families. They're ambitious. They are not people who are looking for a government that will redistribute dignity to them, that will redistribute family stability to them. They want to actually build those things themselves and have a society that allows them to do that and structures that allow them to do that. And I think that that's beautiful for folks on both sides of the border. There are probably no other think tank presidents in the United States that could so easily cite Sir Wilfrid Laurier and, and, uh, and not even drop his name. Rayhan Salam, I knew this would be a, a fascinating conversation and, and you most definitely have not let me down. Thank you so much for joining us today at Hub Dialogues. Thank you again. It was a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar-Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.